My wife is not here, but I know uh, I've been called a nag many times. And I think I'm in good company. I'm okay. And sometimes I think that, that on my epitaph, on my gravestone, my tombstone, uh, if it's written, he was a nag for God, that's okay. Because I look at this and I say that in his dying breath, as it were, the one thing that he wants to come back again, he gives a whole chapter, in this case, 22 uh, verses about, the, um, about false teachers. And he also says, my task is clear. He's passionate. For one, if you were to look from chapter 2, verse 4 to 10, it's one sentence. It's as if Peter does not want to take a breath lest he lose our attention or the reader's attention. He's passionate. And I think, where does his passion come from? Why, Why such passion? I think it's to do with something that he had for breakfast on the beach along with Jesus. Remember in John chapter 21, it might be good to just to turn, to the, turn to that, John 21, where um, <clears throat> Peter begins by looking at, um, you know, the situation, and he says, I'm going to go fishing. And with him, six others are coming fishing. Two of them have been fishermen before, you know, the sons of Zebedee. But the four others, we have no idea if they were fishermen or not. But here is Peter recruiting six others back into his old profession to be fishermen. You don't know how that story went. But it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that goes back again and again seeking out Peter. I just love it. I mean, I, it's, it's, and I think about Peter, what it must be for him, having denied the Lord, he did all that. But again, at that point, when, when he denies it three times, the Lord Jesus looks at Peter, and he goes and he, he cries bitterly. And after that, on the resurrection day, the angel tells Mary, go tell Simon, I'm going to meet him. And, and then here again by the beach, uh, Peter doesn't, you know, uh, Peter is uh, sought again and again as if he's been wooed. But what I like to bring your attention on that John chapter 21, in 15, 16, and 17, the nuances that come in. In verse 15, it says, feed my lambs. Verse 16, it says, Tend my sheep. And then verse 15, 17, sorry, it says, feed my sheep. I'm not sure if we caught that slight difference. And I want to bring just these two differences before and try to um, bring to your attention why such passion for Peter. John, when he uses the word lamb or sheep, he uses three different words. The first word that he uses is used only in John chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36, where John the Baptist, looking at Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God. The word there is used only in that part by John. 
And that word means consecrated to God, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. The two other times it comes is in Acts, Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch is actually reading from the book of Isaiah. And it says there, he was like a sheep led to a slaughter, like a lamb, silent before his shearers, did not say a word. And the next time it appears is in First Peter chapter 1, verse 19, where Peter talking uh, and, and, and saying that we have not been redeemed by uh, perishable things, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as, a, as the lamb without spot and blemish. The lamb. So that's one use of the lamb, all right? So I want you to hold on to that. But the other word is in verse 16 and verse 17, where he uses the word sheep. And the word, um, sorry, I missed one in verse 15. First, let's look at that. It says, feed my lambs. And that word for lamb is that of a little lamb, a little lamb. He uses it again only here. In this, in this verse, but he uses it 29 times in the book of Revelation. And he would look at that and he says, why would John use such a tender word for a lamb in Revelation? And you only see the contrast as the lion and the, sh- and the lamb come together. The tenderness at the same time, the ferocity, the terror, the majesty of the lion. So that's the second use of the lamb. All right? And the third one is in verse 16 and 17, the two times that it's used there. It's feed my sheep. And um, the strong translates that word sheep also as well stricken or aged. The other place where it appears, that word appears is in Luke chapter 1, verse 7, speaking about Elizabeth, who was barren, and they both, that is Zacharias and Elizabeth, were stricken. The same word for that lamb. And so in that phrase, we see both the young lamb and the older sheep being included. So that's the first distinction I want you to hold on to, all right? And then you look at the difference in the word feed and tend. Okay, in in verse 15 and verse 17, the word feed is used. And the the divine's commentary for the word feed means to feed. As a herdsman, as in feeding, all right? But the word tend in verse 16 is a very pastoral term, to tend, to pastor the sheep, to tend as a shepherd, to supply to the soul's need. Now, I think this, this chapter 21 is a great study material because right at the beginning, here is a fisherman trying to recruit people back to the fisherman's uh, profession, and it ends with the fisherman being recruited to be a shepherd. The first time, if you would, there is this very distinctive call to shepherding. And so we see that Peter has got this heart of a shepherd. In First Peter chapter five, verse one, it says, uh, he says to the exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a fellow elder. So he has a shepherd's heart. And I think about it, and it says Peter is really no pope; he is a pastor. He's got the shepherd's heart. And what he's doing in chapter 2 
is one of the activities of a shepherd which is protecting the flock. He wants to protect. He wants to make sure that he tells us to beware, otherwise we'd be enslaved. All right, so we, we get that, all right? So, uh, and so as you read the two chapters, the, sorry, the two episodes of Peter, you get this twofold focus. The one is the focus towards the, uh, the, the sheep. It says, dear Christian, grow up, watch out, and don't be enslaved. Warren Riesby says this, Satan is a counterfeiter. He has a false gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 9, preached by false ministers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 to 12, producing false Christians. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, And Satan plants his counterfeit wherever God plants true believers. No wonder Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary. The devil is prowling like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so he rebukes. And then, and then his focus is also to the elder pastors. He says, dear elder pastor, shepherd the flock of God. Let me read to you a quote. The job of the shepherds of God's people is to provide them with the pure milk of the word of God so that they can move on to the meat and to solid food of the spiritually mature. The pastoral ministry should be primarily one of pastors feeding their people the word of God. Only then can pastors declare, as Peter did, their love for the shepherd. You know what it says? What happened in John 21? If you love me, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. Pastor is saying, I want to carry on that heart. And elders, church leaders, pastors, unless you feed your sheep, unless you, let, unless you show them how to be aware of the things that will happen, you will not be able to show that you love God. And so he spends this entire chapter speaking about the warning, uh, about the impending false prophets. And the interesting part is that this talk about the false prophets is not just by Peter. The Lord Jesus Christ did that in Matthew 7, Matthew 24, and then Paul writing, uh, writing and speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, watch out, guard for ferocious wolves are going to come in your midst. Jude in fact, if you read Jude and 2 Peter 2, it's almost as if they copied from each other. So there is this very concerted uh, force on us that we need to be watchful for about false teaching. So that's the context in which we need to look at what's happening in chapter 2. And so... He begins by saying, false prophets who arose among people just as there will be false teachers among you. He's saying in the Old Testament era, there were these false prophets, and you can be sure that in this New Testament era, there will be false teachers. And it says, among you. That means they will crept, they will crept, there are words like crept in unawares, and they're among you. What it's saying is, watch Watch, not just for the corrupted pulpit, but also for the infected pew. 
Watch not just for the corrupted pulpit, but also for the infected pew. What it's saying here is in our midst, sometimes there could be possibility of false teaching that is happening. Now look at this, and I say, hey, listen, we live in a digital age. And oftentimes, uh, what happens from here, from the pulpit, maybe just the 40 minutes, but we have the opportunity in our, with, with the uh, with the uh, click of the remote, or the, the flick of the remote and the click of the mouse, and access to what we might think is Christian in its context, content, but it's not. It's a care that we need to, we, we need to beware that we are not enslaved. That our spiritual antennas would go up. The moment we hear our brothers, our sisters, our children accessing or listening or hearing or watching things which may not be accurate in its Christian content, that we be watchful for that. Beware. Don't be enslaved. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And so I want us to think about how we need to be careful and how we should prevent this deception creeping in in our midst. And so he goes on to give the profile of the false teachers. Now, what's a job profile? A job profile, if you were recruiting, if you were a hiring manager, is the sheet of paper they give you as to what are some of the things that you need to look out for when you're hiring. And we're not hiring here, but we are, want to identify. And what he does, what Peter does, is he gives 28 characteristics of what to look out for these false teachers. And he um, ends with a proverb saying that their actions, their behavior will indicate to you who they really are. So what we want to do today is we're not going to go through those 28 characteristics. That's not our role. But I want us to be reminded again and again that we are to be, be beware that, that we don't fall to false teaching, that we know what it is, because beware, don't be enslaved. John Piper says this, there are no commands no admonitions, no imperatives in this chapter 2, just pure, terrifying description of what will happen to those who fall prey to the false teachers in the church. And in our context, beyond, because of the availability of such content. So, uh, about two weeks ago, Nishant looked at chapter 1 and we are here today at chapter 2. I came across an article that actually compares chapter 1 and chapter 2 as an authentic Christian, Christian versus a counterfeit Christian. I thought it was a great comparison. That's a study you can do. I'm not going to go into that, but you can read up what looks like should be the authentic Christian in chapter 1 and then compare it with what's happening in chapter 2. I will just touch three parts that spoke to me and that'll, that'll help us understand. So the first one, I want to call the different master. 
In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, We have everything we need for life and godliness in him. In verse 17 of chapter 1, it says, For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But we get to chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. There's this master is Jesus Christ in the, for the authentic Christian in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, they deny the master who bought them. And, so, you know, oftentimes, again, we need to recognize this is deception. They would not stand up and say, I deny, but in their actions, in the choices, in the way they do things, they might deny, and we need to be watchful. Jesus alone must be the master. We keep saying that from verse 19. If that's a key verse, beware, don't be enslaved for whatever overcomes a person. To that he is enslaved. We want to say we don't want to be enslaved to anything or anybody, but Jesus must be our master. The second one. The second one is a different appeal. In chapter 1, verse 19, it says, But we have the word of the prophets made more certain to you, and we do well to pay attention to it. It's about the focus on the scriptures. But you get to verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, By appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. First is an appeal to the scripture. The second is an appeal to the lustful desires of people. You see, one, they say, this is what thus says the Lord. This is God's word. Let's follow it. The second is, let's do as men pleases. So the focus is not the word of God, and we need to be careful. The third one is that they have a different end. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 11 says, a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of the Lord. But in chapter 2, we see they have swift destruction. Their condemnation has been long and has been hanging, and the destruction has not been sleeping. So what are we trying to do here? I think my heart says that we need to stop coasting along on the spiritual highway. We don't want to be standing too close to the edge and we think it's okay. We want to grow. We want to mature. Lest we be deceived. The problem with deception is that everybody else is able to see except the person. And, And so Peter is saying, you know, grow, mature, watch out. You don't have to be saved by the skin of your teeth as an expression. We read that in First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, I believe it is, or verse 5, where it says, you know, that he himself shall be saved, he or she himself will be saved, but as though by fire. He'll, he'll suffer loss, but saved as though by fire, just by the skin of the teeth. While Peter is saying here, he just said in verse 11 that, that for if they do these things, are richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of God. A rich entrance into the kingdom of God. And so this deception that comes to us, we think that we've done the sinner's prayer, we've, you know, we go to church, we have had the communion. 
but we can be deceived. You see what Wearsby has to say. An average person does not know how to listen to and analyze the kind of propaganda that pours out of the mouths and the printing presses of the apostates. Many people cannot tell the difference between a religious huckster and a sincere servant of Jesus Christ. What is saying here is, on an average, we Christians are not able to find out or discern who, what is the Bible saying versus what is that false teacher saying. We, we don't seem to discern. And the only, and the only antidote to that is to grow in the word of the Lord to grow in the word of the Lord. That's why, you know, we've always said our urge is that whatever you listen from here, write it down, you know, note it down and, and go back, be the Berean. You know, in Acts 17, Paul says about them, he says they were noble and the fact that even when Paul taught them, they would go find out whether it's in the scripture or not. And that is, that's a noble thing, God's word says. And so for the two questions that are emailed to you, go through it again and say, is this so? And if it's so, I need to grow. I need to mature. I need to move from the edge. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be swept away. Beware. Don't be enslaved. You know, chapter 1, we saw when Nishant was talking about it. Chapter 1, he says, these are the ones who will supplement their faith. To faith, they add virtue. To virtue, they add knowledge. To knowledge, they add self-control. Self-control, steadfastness. Steadfastness, they add godliness. Godliness, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection, to that, they add love. They grow. They're not just satisfied by saying, okay, I'm saved, I'm on the safe side and stay close to the edge. They need to grow. You need to spend that, have that desire, don't let that be quenched. That's the authentic chapter one Christian. And my plea to you today is that, two, two pleas. One is let's be watchful for anybody who is a counterfeit Christian. And most importantly, we pray that we don't turn up to be that counterfeit Christian. And so, what I want to do from this chapter two is to draw four principles. I won't take, it won't take too long, but four principles that you can take out from this and that we can apply to ourselves. So, one of that, uh, uh, so the four, I want to call it the perception, the principle of perception, the principle of promise, the principle of precaution, and the principle of practice. First, I want you to understand is the principle of perception. Paul is saying there will be false teachers. False teachers are guaranteed. There will be false teachers in the church, and they will come in secretly. They don't come wearing a name tag, hi, I'm a counterfeit Christian. They don't. And, and so to have the perception to identify, to know who they are, we can only do that by looking at the word. You see, if you were to go to this bank teller and give them $100, what's the first thing they would do? They would put it under that blue light. 
they, they, they do that to check if it's a counterfeit note or not. And I, and I want to urge you to move to that, that when you get, when somebody speaks to you God's word, that you would bring it under the light of the gospel and light of the scripture to see if that is so. Because we want to perceive it, we want to know. In First Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it says, you must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like lamp shining in a dark place. It's like the lamp shining in a dark place that gives us light. Then you have the principle of promise. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, the Lord rescues the godly from the trials. And I read that, and I'm thrilled, you see, because it sometimes puts you into this mindset, hey, what's going to happen to me? Am I deceived? And we lose our, our sense of security. And, and the principle of promises is God knows to save those are his. Verse 5, it says he saved Noah. And then verse 7, he, he says he rescued the righteous lot. And it's in that context we read in verse 9 that the Lord rescues the godly from the trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now I want you to understand that there are two parts to it. The first part we saw that he saves the godly. He, those who are his, he saves. The second is that the unrighteous, he will punish. He will punish. The two go together. That's his word. What's interesting is just after that, Peter continues on about something. He, he, he brings in a very interesting situation on what we call the rebuking of the devil. Right? You know, we, we hear this term, rebuking of the devil. And let's see what Peter has to say about that. In Verse 10 and 11, it says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones where angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. You know, the closest corollary to this is in Jude, where uh, the archangel Michael contending for the dev, with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses and did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but says the Lord rebuke you. And in James chapter 4 verse 7 it says resist the devil. Submit to God, resist the devil. So when you bring it all in, what we hear in verse 11 when he says, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them or the glorious ones before the Lord. Now, true, the Bible scholars are scratching their head as to why Peter would call, or if it's the fallen angels or the devil, why would he call them the glorious, um, glorious ones in that verse as you read. But whatever road, the various explanations are given, but whatever road you take, you come to this one thing that... The, it's the false teacher, the counterfeit Christian, who does not tremble to blaspheme the religious ones. That Jesus is our appeal. So, what does that sound in English? That God will take care. He knows how to care for his, his ones. He will, he, will, he will keep them. He will uh, rescue them. 
And those we feel sometimes, how are they getting away with that or whatever you might have, somebody has done something to you and you want to retaliate, you just leave it to God. If there's a blasphemer or there's a personal attack, I don't know what, whatever it is, we often say, you know, let's rebuke the devil. No, let's just leave it to God. We submit to him. It's his promise that he will take care of you. So whatever be the situation that you go through, you feel like you want to take control, the idea is to leave it to God. And then there is this principle of precaution in verse 19. We were looking at that as our key verse, whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. It's interesting in verse 15, there is this term, uh, there's this uh, reference to Balaam. The Balaam, the son of Boser. Now, uh, 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 the best textual evidence would say that in your translation, if it says Beor in, the, you know, in, in, in different texts, it says Boser. That seems to be the best evidence that we have. And what Paul was trying to say here is it, it's a play on words. He's actually using the word flesh. He was saying Balaam was the son of flesh, referring to how he was greedy and at all costs wanted to make money. So we have one of the enemies there. Well, what other thing is very interesting is the, the three enemies uh, or the, through the three punishments that we see right at the beginning from verse 4 onwards. You see, verse 4, we see committing of the angels to gloomy darkness. That's verse 4. Verse 5, we have the flood of the ancient world. And then in verse 6, we have the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah turned into ashes. Three punishments. And if you pause to see those three punishments deal with the three enemies that we face... The punishment of the, uh, of the angels is to, it deals with the devil. The flood of Noah deals with the world. And the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah with that of the flesh. And we know the three enemies that we face is the devil, the world, and the flesh. And we can fall prey to any of these three. The lust of the flesh the pride of life, and the pride of eyes. Beware, don't be enslaved. And so, the question is, how do I, how do I prevent this? How do I nip the bud? Where's the bud that I can nip it? And I think it's in the, I, I want to I say it's about the heart. It's the heart issues. It's the heart issues. Oftentimes we say, don't follow your heart. Or, 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 it, or the world would say, go follow your heart, right? Do what your heart is saying. And I think a Christian would say, no, don't follow your heart. Follow God's heart. Because our heart is deceitful and extremely wicked. And oftentimes what we think is what the Spirit of God is telling us is what probably our heart is prompting us. It's got nothing to do with the word of God. 
that's why it's great as you see Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 it says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and it says it's a discerner of the intent of your heart what we feel often sometimes I want us to stop and to pause and see whether am I, is it coming out of my flesh out of my heart or is it from the word of God the, the desires that we have, you know, is it the world system, the desire to, to do well in the world at a cost, at an expense of all that, of, of what God is telling us, is that worth it? That we would have this, this you know, to excel in, in the world, if it leads to compromise and you still say that's okay, then you've been enslaved by the world system. To do well at all cost. Or the enemy, the devil. The heart is something that we really need to guard, isn't it? John Piper says this. Uh, let me read to you another quote bef- uh, uh, which I found which is, which is so uh, wise. In our day, we are rightly warned about the danger of a sterile faith, of a head knowledge that never touches the heart but we need equally to be careful of a heart knowledge that never touches the head. What it's saying is, you know, we always talk about, you know, this person knows a lot, but hasn't got down to the heart. We, we, we say that of a Christian, right? They say of, of a person who professes to be a Christian, oh, he's got a head knowledge, but he's going to miss heaven by a foot because it's not come down, come down to his heart. But we forget oftentimes the reverse, what stems in the heart but's not rationally captured to think through, to know whether this is of the word. We don't do that. And to, and to pause and to say, no, I don't want to be deceived. John Piper therefore adds and says, simple factors, our morality often determines our theology rather than the theology dictating our morality. You know, it, 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 um, what John Piper is saying is how we think is how we act. What's in our heart is what is spilt. You know, what we think, what we act, what we do is how we start to pull word, pull from the scripture so that we can, we can um, uh, you know, we can substantiate what we are thinking. And so we, um, he goes on to talk about how Solomon's heart Solomon's heart was stolen by his foreign wives before he began to worship the idols. The young man of Proverbs 7 is shown as a man who lacks sense and he's eventually led like an animal to slaughter by a woman who seduces him. So we need to guard our heart. What feeds us is what fuels us. What feeds us is what fuels us. What we feed on is what will fuel us. We think about this, right? I mean, we, we, we spend about eight hours at workplace. Then we spend probably another hour or two commuting, and then we probably have some time with the family. And so the family devotion or our Bible time gets squished, if at all, to like 10 minutes. We tend to live our lives in compartments. So this is not something to say, increase the size of your compartment. I'm not here to say you need to spend one hour reading the Bible. 
that is not what's going to get you out of this out of this danger what God's word is saying here is we cannot live our life in compartments. The word of God must speak into and through every aspect of our life that we wear, if this were the gospel, the moment I take it off, I can't see anything, that that would be the truth about our lives, that the only thing that we see is through the, through the colored glasses of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be at workplace, whether it be as we commute, whether it be with a family, that we will speak life, that we will talk about the word, that we will, we will do things that will encourage and strengthen and build up us as Christians. Lest we think that by our efforts we've been paid, that it's through our, like if I don't do the work or whatever, God is not, you know, that I have to fend for myself, but God is just for Sundays. I want us to break that paradigm. It's not, it's not therefore about, you see, your time. It's about our attitude. It's about saying that if he is my true master, the authentic Christian of chapter one, then I will not deny him I will hear him, I will, he will be my life. Because in my actions in chapter 2, belie that, then I'm in a dangerous position. And so he ends by looking at and talking about the principle of practice. He says, your practice, your life will reveal your pers- personhood. Your behavior will tell you who you are. Vernon McGee says this so beautifully. He says, practice betrays a nature. Dogs return to corruption that comes from within them. That's vomit. And pigs return to filth they find on the outside of themselves, even though their handlers may clean them up occasionally. And so Peter is saying, beware, don't be enslaved, both to the corruption from within and to the filth which is outside. The filth that comes from within or the corruption that is on the outside. How do we know we're not deceived? Recently I was talking to somebody in one of those um, Thursday studies that God opened an opportunity and he said, yes, he's a Christian. He believes in Jesus Christ. And then as I started talking to him, he says, no, you know, God has manifested himself in different ways through different religions to different people. And who am I to judge? So all you have to do is just scratch just a little below the surface. The core beliefs come out. And you know where they really stand. You see, so the question I had to ask myself is, can you believe and still be lost? Can you believe in Jesus Christ and still be lost? And my answer is yes. Because even the demons, they believe. What's the difference? If the transforming work of the gospel has not happened in your heart, if the 
nature, the, the urge that you have, the hunger you, that you have is not for the spiritual. It's not so that your master, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be glorified. If it is not that, then I believe you may be stuck in chapter 2 of Second Peter. And my prayer is this, that for all of us, that we, we would not be the ones who would escape by the skin of our teeth or even be like in Matthew 7, be found knocking on the door, Lord, let me in, and the Lord would just say, I, I never knew you. I don't want to lose. I, we don't want to lose any of us. And if our friends, the ones you've been praying for, your relatives, your parents, I know, it's time for deception. And as, as, as it gets cranked up, we cannot take the quiet position of saying, let's just coast along. It, everything should be okay. And that's a deception from the devil. I, um, <clears throat> I thought of this, that if Peter were here, what would he call me? Would I be the dog that likes the corruption that comes from within and I fall prey to that? Or am I a pig that falls to the filth on the outside? Or am I a false teacher? Am I a counterfeit Christian? Am I a Christian toddler still on milk? Or am I a mature Christian fed on meat? We've had many babies in this last year, in the past two years. And as parents, you have, you know, weaned them. You have, it's almost a day of celebration when you say, oh, he, the child is on solids. And one day all of us will go and have a juicy steak. Because that's good health. And so how is it Okay. For us to be on spiritual milk. When things of the Lord are spoken, you would say, oh, that's not for me, that's for them. No, if you're a Christian, we must all grow. We cannot have it otherwise. Because, it, because the very definition of deception is that you will only know when you find yourself knocking on the door to be let in. And so I ask the second question, if I were to be honest with myself, how will I answer this question? Who am I a slave to? Can I, with Peter, with Paul, and all those people say, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, a bond servant of Jesus Christ? That is my prayer for us. Father, we pray that nothing would enslave us, Lord, in, in this world, not our flesh, not the devil, but that we would be bond servants of Jesus Christ. To you alone, Lord. We, we came to remember your son to show forth his death. And Lord, we hear Peter, we want, we want to hear Peter screaming in our, eye, in our ears, as it were, every time we, we either see someone else who is listening and talking and things which are, which are heretical or false, 
or even us, Lord, we pray that we would have this desire to mature, to move on, leaving the elemental things to higher things, to grow, Lord, to long for the meat of the word of God. May this be true for all of us and for the many who are missing today, Lord, we pray that we will not lose any of them. We thank you for the promise that you know how to keep those who are yours. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name we pray.